Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. College students were pretty strongly reviled by a lot of the uh, older generation and politicians. And so I, you know, I went from one reviled group, veterans, war veterans, to being a student who are equally as reviled. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I felt like, no, I can't win. The other feeling was one of the most horrendous, mind-blowing events was 1970 when they had a Kent State shooting on, on Kent State campus. And my feeling was, you know, I felt lucky to survive Vietnam where I felt the government was trying to get me killed to become a student. And I, my feeling was, well, now I'm a student. They're still trying to kill me. <laughs> so I took it very personally. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in our series of segments in the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our guest today is Chuck Sprague, who lives in the uh, Milwaukee suburb of Muskego, Wisconsin. Chuck is joining us today from his home. Chuck is a former Navy corpsman who served with the 3rd Marine Division in Vietnam. He is also a former psychiatrist who spent his career working at Veterans Administration hospitals throughout the United States. Hello, Chuck, and thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Bob. Good to see you and talk to you again. Well, likewise, that's for sure. We're doing this on a remote basis due to the ongoing concerns of the coronavirus. I want to jump right in, if you wouldn't mind giving us a summary of your life before the military. Were you raised in a military family, et cetera? And just what is it that you did prior to uh, enlisting? Okay. I wasn't raised in a military family, but my father was in the service twice. Once as a kid in the 20s with the Navy as a corpsman, and then again in the 40s as a surgeon with the Navy once more. So there was a lot of military history in the family. I grew up in uh, sunny Southern California (laughs) in an orange-growing area. I don't think I had planned to go in the service. I was going to go to college, and I started a year or two of that. And I almost got drafted, but before they could draft me, I joined the Navy Reserve. And so that's how I slipped in. (laughs) When was this, Chuck? 
Oh, I'm sorry. This is back in 1966 when I joined up. In your family, are you brothers and sisters? or? I have two older sisters. So you joined the reserves and then the regular Navy, is that right? Well, no, I remained a reserve, so I had a two-year active duty obligation. Okay. And tell us about that. What happened during that period of time? Well, I went right into core school training at San Diego Navy Hospital, which is now closed as a core school. But at that time, they trained a lot of corpsmen during the Vietnam era. One thing that was very um, noticeable to us is in the hallway of our classroom area, they had put up all the photographs of Medal of Honor winners who were corpsmen. And it would give the story of their exploits. And very often at the bottom, it said posthumous, which means they died <laughs> receiving their medal. So this was kind of put up as a uh, exemplar for us, I think. It was quite apparent that we could be in a dangerous job, I think. After training, which is, used to be 16 weeks, four months, they usually sent us for at least six months, sometimes a year, to a Navy hospital or a Marine area. And you have more training and hospital care. You kind of become like a practical nurse, essentially. Mm. I was sent to Bethesda National Naval Medical Center, which I thought would be exciting because of all the brass and people like that who were there. And it's where I kind of learned that having brass around was not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> because... <laughs> you had to polish your shoes and clean all of the, all of the uh, brass every time they came. <laughs> so it became a real pain in the neck. A thing that strikes me, Bob, I think I talked to you about this personally one time, was most of the young troops who go overseas and go into combat only have a vague idea of what they're in for. And so they can retain this feeling of invincibility and uh, not have to worry about reality much until they get overseas. Unfortunately, corpsmen are in the hospital taking care of wounded veterans. And so we would talk to them and we would treat their wounds. We'd, you know, change their dressings every day and uh, work on the tubes that were going in and coming out of them. But, you know, I had a pretty good early introduction to what a bouncing Betty does to your middle parts, what a 50 caliber machine gun, a shell can do to your chest or your abdomen, what napalm does to you. So unfortunately, by the time a corpsman gets overseas, they have a pretty gross and graphic idea of what might be in store for them. And I, I think that's, that's, that's a very difficult introduction to your job. It would be nice if we were totally... Uh, unaware. But unfortunately, we had a pretty good idea of what we we're going to face. But even even given that, we, we, were, we really weren't ready. <laughs> I neglected to mention right off the top of our conversation that a corpsman in the Navy is the equivalent of a medic in the Army. So it just so happens that the Navy provides the medics for Marines in battle. And universally, yep. it is accepted lingo that Marines will refer to a corpsman as Doc. So in this case, you would be Doc right. Sprague, et cetera, Doc Jones, whatever the case may be. And I must say personally that I, and I'm anxious to hear your feelings about this, I 
I know that I always personally held Corman in very high esteem. Did you encounter that level of respect from other Marines throughout your pre-deployment days? Pre-deployment, yes. During the pre-deployment days, when you get into the field, then you start out as a new guy and you have to earn the respect out, mm-hmm. out there. But after your tour is over, certainly any time I run into a Marine, I get a very hearty welcome <laughs> from, <laughs> from field Marines. Well, I think it's interesting what you mentioned. It sounds from the train, not only the training that you had, but the actual practical experience of working in hospitals with Marines in this case who had been wounded in action and yeah. some severely. To what degree did this affect your expectations prior to your orders to go to Vietnam? Well, I tend to be a little pessimistic, so it fed into that. I really thought it was going to be a pretty rough time, Mm -hmm. but my expectations didn't even come close. (laughs) Tell us about what it was like. You went through training, and now the day comes that you receive orders that you're going to be sent to Vietnam. Take us from there. Where did you arrive, and, and where did you move to after that arrival in country? See, we arrived at Da Nang Air Base, which was pretty far north. And then we took another smaller plane up to Dong Ha, which is very close to the DMZ. That's up in Icor, where you were. So you know that neighborhood pretty well. I remember going to Dong Ha very well, also because when we arrived, they dropped the rear deck and said, run like hell and head for the edges of the runway. There's a trench there, and you may need to get in it. Because Gong Ha was well within artillery range of North Vietnam. It's bigger guns, and they also took mortars and rockets. So that was a ter- kind of a scary <laughs> arrival. You know, it's a run for your life as soon as you get there. Fortunately, there weren't any rounds coming in. When we arrived, we got on a truck and went to... Uh, Dong Ha, where we were staged and given our gear. I have a story about that. <laughs> that and, and also, first of all, what year was this that you arrived in Vietnam? I arrived in July of 1968, which okay. was just about the peak of the uh, American buildup. As you know, we were well up to 500,000 troops at the time. And I was probably part of a large surge Uh, sailors and Marines who were replacing people who had been injured or casualties right during Tet. The big Tet attacks of February 1968, we were kind of replacements, I would say. The Tet Offensive of that year of uh, February of 68 Mm -hmm. was a massive invasion-style battle almost by the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong to attack numerous American bases, including the American Embassy in Saigon is seen by some as a kind of turning point to the war, which it's a remarkable day in Vietnam history, certainly. Now, when did you get the orders to which unit you were going to? How did that occur? I didn't know what unit I'd go to. When I was at Da Nang, I went to uh, 3rd Marine Corps headquarters, and they signed us in. And it was the usual kind of rear area office with kibitzers and people sitting around and watching the new guys coming in and making fun of us, you know. And the first thing I noticed is when I checked in, the uh, main clerks told me and the other corpsman and said, okay, you guys 
are going to one and nine. And the other guys in the room all started laughing and said, I remember very graphically, they said, one nine, man, you guys are dead. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, well, gee, that's a nice introduction. So that's how I knew it was going to one nine. I hadn't heard of them, but I was, I learned pretty quickly. They were called the walking dead. And it had nothing to do with the um, television show. This is way <laughs> before then. It was actually a translation of something that North Vietnamese leader uh, Jop said about one nine. He said, we're going to get those guys. And they're just dead men walking, essentially. He called us wow. debochet in uh, Vietnamese, which essentially means the walking dead. So. And this was 1-9 is the abbreviation for the 1st Battalion, 9th, 9th Marine Regiment, and he has this yeah. uh, remarkable place in Marine lore. How long were kind of. <laughs> you in the field with 1-9? And what, what was your experience like when you were with them? Okay. I was in country a little over eight months, and uh, all of my time was field time. Mm-hmm which was kind of unusual when I got there. They told me, you will be in the bush about three to six months. And we get replacements, you know, and then you can rotate out. You'll spend your latter days working at a BAS, a battalion aid station in the rear, or a medical battalion. So that was something all the field corpsmen looked forward to. But I never made it. I was in the uh, bush the whole time. Why was that? There were no replacements. Uh-huh. I actually had four partners in eight months. One was ready to go, and the other two left early for different reasons, medical reason and a legal reason. <laughs> oh, my. The two guys. So I was working alone, actually. The uh, usual strength in a platoon, you know, about 50 Marines in platoon, led by a Staff sergeant and above, and a lieutenant usually has two corpsmen, but uh, a lot of the time I was the only corpsman for the whole platoon. What were your feelings like during that period of time? One thing that leaps to my mind is wondering if you felt demoralized, the fact that you were simply not getting a replacement, <laughs> yeah. you kept getting put off, but I'm, I'm sure there were other emotions at work. What, what was that like? You've talked to a lot of veterans, and and we've you and I both read a lot of war history. I think a real universal feeling among combat troops is a strong sense of betrayal on many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most immediately, well, there are different levels of danger and combat, but if you're frontline Marine infantry, you're <laughs> you're not, not going to have an easy life. You probably, well, like us, you don't get to sleep in a uh, cabin or a tent, and you're outside in the elements almost all the time, and you do run out of food and water, medical care, you know, medical supplies, those sort of things. So it's a very, um, it seemed a, a life of deprivation, you know. And what I didn't know, Bob, but at the time, though, was what was being done with our uh, battalion and a couple of others is they were kind of trolling us back and forth across the North Vietnamese infiltration routes just below the DMZ. Of course, you know, that's not flat uh, Kansas-type terrain. It's uh, (laughs) mountainous, triple canopy, jungle-covered territory. It's pretty hard to move around in. So it was, I guess I could shorten the story. 
when I got there, I was a very nice, chubby um, football guard kind of size guy at 240 pounds. And when I left eight months later, I weighed 150. Oh, my. And so that was just one one example. But, you know, there weren't that many emotions. You, you know, we talked before about the changes you go through during a tour. At first, you're frightened of everything. You jump at every noise. You don't know what's going on. Eventually, you become oriented and you begin to study and learn what, what to do. You become a little more comfortable, but you're still very frightened. And somewhere in the middle, you get, or later, you get numb. Mm-hmm. You just think, I'm really never going to make it out of here, so why worry about it? <laughs> mm-hmm. You also know that who gets hurt is just a matter of luck or bad luck. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. It doesn't matter how much you know or how smart you are or how skilled. If your number's up, you know, it's up. What were the circumstances of your departure from Vietnam? Did a replacement come or <laughs> did something else happen? Yeah, there was a replacement. He was here a couple of days with me. And then I think I had about four days left till I was supposed to rotate home. And I was wounded. So I was wounded during an operation in the Asha Valley. It's a big operation, now famous in Marine Corps history. I think it's the Dewey Canyon operation in the Asha mm-hmm. Valley. And we had a lot of casualties in that thing. But I was wounded by a mortar, and we were in triple canopy area that where no helicopters could land. And so they hovered about 60 or 80 feet above and dropped a line and hoisted us up oh casualties. So we went up through the belly of the helicopter in not a basket, but the old mummy stretcher that the Navy used. And so we went went up in the line. The unnerving thing about that, Bob, is when you, you know that it's the biggest, fattest target in the <laughs> valley, and that mm-hmm. damn thing is hovering there for uh, forever. And you <laughs> figure if there's anybody near with a weapon, they're going to you know open up on it. You wonder if, you, you know, you'll make that. So that's how I left. And then I went through the casualty evacuation system and had a couple operations. And fortunately, as a corpsman, I knew that my family would be notified. Mm-hmm. And I uh, told them at the uh, casualty station, do not notify my family. Do not do it. Really? Um, right. And I did that so that when I finally had a chance to use a phone, which was at the Navy Hospital in Guam, mm-hmm. it's about four or four days later, my family didn't know what had happened. There hadn't been a telegram or anything. And when I got to that hospital, I was able to call home and talk to my family. Mm. So uh, that was, I think I was very pleased I could do that. Say, here I am, and I'm out of Vietnam, I'm okay, and so forth and so on. And then and you, much, much later, they got a telegram that was kind of gruesome sounding. So it's really, yeah. really a good thing that I was able to talk to him first. And you were married at the time, were you not, Chuck? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. My, oh, my. So how long did you stay in, in Guam for the sake of recovery? Just about a week. Okay. Had an operation there, and then I was transferred to Navy Hospital near home, which was mm-hmm. Long Beach. And I was there for about a month or six weeks or something. But part of that time, I was on convalescent leave at home. And since I was going to be discharged from active duty anyway, I went ahead and started back to college while I was on convalescent leave. Mm-hmm. 
So it was a very uh, strange reintroduction to civilian life. But What was your wife's reaction when she saw you for the first time back home? Well, that's a, that's a pretty dramatic story. Her side of it will be interesting. You know, I think we all have these images that we create in our minds of how a reunion will be with a loved one. It was kind of something out of the sound of music, you know. I thought we would be <laughs> running towards each other in a flower-strewn meadow. In slow motion. You know, and run into each other's arms, you know, and so forth and so on. The reality was far different and very disappointing, actually. But, and we laugh about it now. Well, I was on a ward with eight other Marines, and I had a bushy mustache that I didn't have. In fact, I still have the mustache. <laughs> I grew in 68. I kept it. But I was on a ward, this 150-pound little guy, and my wife walked by and walked down past every guy on the ward, including me, and just kept going. Uh-oh. And so she didn't recognize me at all. And I said, honey. <laughs> and she said, oh, you know. So that was, that was the reality. You know, instead of this great cinematic reunion, it was kind of like she didn't recognize me. But we, we, we laugh at that now. <laughs> at the time, it was pretty crushing. My gosh. <laughs> We are visiting with Chuck Sprague. He is a Vietnam veteran who served as a Navy corpsman for Marines in Vietnam, serving with the 3rd Marine Division, and more specifically, the 1st Battalion of the 9th Marine Regiment, sometimes referred to as the Walking Dead due to the number of casualties that group suffered. You're back home. You've come through Vietnam. You're not going back to Vietnam, but yet... right. Uh, you had these experiences there, a sense of betrayal, and I'm, I'm guessing perhaps a sense yeah. of anger that came along with the betrayal. And now you're back home again and, and thinking about starting school. What Was there a collision between some of these feelings that you had in Vietnam now that you're back home? I was really excited about going back to college. So mm -hmm. I was going to, you know, grow my hair as quickly as I could and resume college. What was going on, though, after the uh, riots for the um, through the political conventions in the summer of 68. So mm -hmm. I got there, got home in March of 69. So college students were pretty strongly reviled by a lot of the uh, older generation and politicians. And so I, you know, I went from one reviled group, veterans, war veterans, to being a student who are equally as reviled. So mm -hmm. I felt like, no, I can't win. The other feeling was one of the most horrendous, mind-blowing events was 1970 when they had the Kent State shooting on, on Kent State campus. And my feeling was, you know, I felt lucky to survive Vietnam where I felt the government was trying to get me killed to become a student, and I, my feeling was, well, now I'm a student, they're still trying to kill me. <laughs> so I took it very personally, <laughs> and I was furious. My, my wife might have something to say about it. She practically had to handcuff me and tie me down that week, and I was, I, I was ready to join the revolution if there was one. <laughs> I was furious. With whom did you share that anger and some of these other negative feelings? Talked to my wife mm -hmm. 
about those things. I know a lot of troops would try to keep things from their family. I'm not very good at that. I've always been real open with my wife about things. We've been together 52 years and we're each other's best friend. And so uh, mm -hmm. I never sugarcoated things for her. I didn't tell her what was going on in my head and uh, mm -hmm. you know, and why that didn't scare her to death, I don't know. Chuck, you said you were reviled when you came home as a veteran. Now, did anything in your military training prepare you for that kind of a reaction from, from the public? Well, I think we were expecting the World War II type, you know, welcome home, buddy. This is great. Let me buy you a beer. And of course, that didn't happen. Older veterans weren't very welcoming. The veteran service organizations didn't want Vietnam veterans to join or have anything to do with them. Why was that? Well, I think it was mutual. We didn't want to join them either. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think they thought of us as uh, baby killers and dopers and, you know, all that stuff. And again, we weren't terribly well regarded. You know, it seems like our country goes from extremes. We went to, from that extreme to this hyper regard for anyone in the military, you know. <laughs> Did this make you begin to examine yourself? Did you... Mm -hmm. You know, in a way, did you begin to think there was something wrong with you? It, it must be my fault that they're looking at me this way, that there was some stigma attached to it? Mm -hmm. Not as bad as some of the other troops. You know, Corman are really a, a kind of an odd thing. You know, we're supposedly, quote, non-combatants, unquote. Mm -hmm. But when you're with a Marine unit, you kind of, we're given special consideration you know it's understood we don't know all of the complete marine ethos and so we're excused and so we're sort of an outsider looking in you know it's almost like being a journalist embedded somewhere mm -hmm. and so they think we're handy and they like us and we can do good <laughs> things for them but we're not a marine and so and we look at the marines a little bit from a distance and see what they're doing and uh, uh, it's a very strange life I mean, <laughs> to be a corpsman. One of the remarkable aspects to your life story is that you ultimately became not just an MD, a medical doctor, but a psychiatrist and worked yeah. in VA hospitals for your entire career. Bring us up to speed on how that happened. At what point when you started attending college did you think you might pursue a degree in medicine and ultimately make the choices you did? In my family, that was probably expected. My father was a physician, and I, I think after Vietnam, I decided I would go and you know become a physician. And so, you know, a lot of combat veterans keep feelings and recollections away by you know getting very deep, deeply involved in something. And it may be work, it may be study, it may be dr drugs or alcohol, but you know they, they get immersed in something else. And I was a workaholic, a study, you know, freak. So I spent all my time studying and not dwelling on the past too much unless, you know, you had an event like Kent State. But for the first 15 years, if anybody asked me, you know, how does that affect you being Vietnam? I would say, you know, I would have told them, that's yeah, not a problem. You know, I'd say mm -hmm. I, I sort of have a few misty memories of what happened, but I don't have much in the way of feelings about it. 
the reason I went in psychiatry, at the end of 15 years, I've been in practice eight years, and Vietnam started to overwhelm my days and nights, you know, memories and flashbacks and really you know, depression and anger. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very severe. After 15 years? Yeah. That's when it flared up. And it probably flared up like it does for many people when there's stress in their lives. My father passed away, which was a big shock to me and or not a shock, but a big loss. And also I was not enjoying my practice in, in medicine. I did not like what I was doing. I was pretty unhappy. I was in a private practice situation and every with a group of people and they were very much oriented to make all the money you can make. And I just was not, mm -hmm. that was not my ethos. I wanted to spend more time with patients, and that kind of thing. And I wasn't going to worry about production and making money. So I did have some therapy, which wasn't real helpful. But I, what, initially, what happened finally is I quit medicine. I quit practice. I just mm. gave up. And I, I just kind of went into six months to stage like a monk and read philosophy and psychiatry and spiritual works and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And remember that I enjoyed psychiatry as a student. So I thought, well, you know. Maybe this is the way to go. So I went into a training program. It's three more years of residency training. And the program, I think, was therapeutic for me because psychiatry residents have their own group therapy together and so forth and so on. I was working with veterans who I thought I would never work with again, but I found out I actually loved doing it. What made it so worthwhile for you? For me, I felt like I could offer some important things to them, an understanding and an empathy because of my time in combat. And I was able to talk to people that weren't comfortable talking to other physicians, maybe. I was developed an interest in military history, different units, and that's what I started talking to different veterans about and learning their unit history and the kind of things they'd been through. And for me, it was a, really a giving back. It was, you know, the fact that I survived. Certainly, there was probably some subconscious guilt about that. Mm -hmm. And But being able to give back and help other veterans was very important to me, particularly the older veterans, World War II veterans, and Korean War veterans who really felt left out in the cold and forgotten. <laughs> and work with them, and then later work with the uh, Desert Storm and Afghanistan and Iraq people. You know, there's a striking irony here, if you ask me, and that is one of the strongest and most painful emotions that you felt in Vietnam was what you described to us as a sense of betrayal. Mm -hmm. But yet, one of the most life-giving, if I don't mean to put words in your mouth here, but from your description, one of the most life-giving experiences you had during your years of practice was in your connection with veterans that ultimately was yeah. based on trust, which is a complete opposite of betrayal. It's rather ironic, yeah. isn't it? No, well, I suppose. But that's how you heal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's how you heal each other. A book that meant a lot to me was by... A, a physician named Henri Nouwen, and he wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. It was a very helpful kind of idea. Sometimes people were an imperfect vessel, but were just ideal for doing certain things. And so there's, I'm a real believer in you can sometimes heal yourself through your mm -hmm. work or your interests. 
that kind of thing. Did you find it surprising that the World War II veterans, the older veterans that you counseled, et cetera, had some of the feelings and emotions that they had, and, and there was some similarity between those and, and even the Iraq War veterans? Well, that's, that's the important thing, I think, is when veterans can sit down and talk with each other, even, or even with non-veterans, when, when you get down to an individual's story, and you hear their story, and the connection begins. It's it's just by talking and listening, mm-hmm. listening very importantly. I found that the stories from World War One, Two, and later, when you talk to people who are in combat, they're very similar. The technology may be a little different, but you know the feelings and emotions and experiences are very close, and you can see those also. In history, you know, I remember reading the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey when I was in <laughs> college, you know, a freshman. And I read it again after Vietnam, and man, it was a completely different story to me. After Vietnam, I could really relate. <laughs> I think that the Iliad begins, the first word is rage. Really? The very first word, rage. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the first story about Achilles, he felt betrayed by his leader because he wasn't given enough of the uh, spoils, that sort of thing. But, yeah, so the Iliad and the Odyssey tell the same stories that veterans experience and tell today as well. It's not that we're all exactly the same, but, right. but there are some very certain themes that run. I want to talk about the important things that <laughs> helped me and helped my patients. We, you know, I quickly found that medication and therapy and treatment never did the uh, did enough, and that people who were going to get better and heal had to have some extra help, and and it was usually healing in the spiritual realm mm-hmm. and relationships. And so it's very important for me personally, this will embarrass my wife, but she was the main anchor in my life. She's the one I referred back to. She's the reason I didn't go running around crazy and doing weird stuff because uh, you know, I knew she was there. I knew she loved me completely no matter what I did. And I could tell her anything. So I always felt anchored to her and my family was supportive. So I count myself very much more fortunate than many, many veterans I saw because many of them lose their families, lose their wives and relationships in the process of their PTSD. That's that's the worst part of the stigma. You kind of lose your support, but those are needed to recover. Actually, there's two questions here. I'm wondering what might you suggest to someone going through such struggles? But before that, you personally, have you been able to successfully reconcile the negative effects of such things as survivor guilt and anger and and betrayal and these other negative emotions? Well, again, you know, how I did it was leaning on the relationships Mm -hmm. that sustained me. And certainly some kind of spiritual reckoning is necessary. You know, we still don't reintegrate troops, combat troops into our society very well, even, you know, in the latest conflicts. I'm, I'm amazed at that because people who are in very simple tribal societies, 
have known this for thousands of years, and they mostly have ceremonies, sending off their warriors and then receiving them back. They have a welcoming back or a purification ceremony, and they all recognize the need for that before they go back into their you know day-to-day life. And we just seem to not do that. The veterans are good at caring for one another, but I still think they need a reimmersion in, in the non-veteran population and acceptance by them. That's still a struggle, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems to move by inches, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Is there something, if it was possible, is there something that you would do differently if you could? Hmm. I don't know <laughs> if I would do anything differently. And Carol will tell you a little bit. One thing about veterans, combat veterans, is they're kind of restless. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> as you mentioned, they, you know, we go from job to job. And, you know, we, uh, when we're really uh, tied up, we are, we're avoidant. We don't want to be around people in crowds and so forth. And I certainly, you know, I went through all of that. I'm still not a, a crowd lover, but mm-hmm. in fact, well, this is a funny, this is a weird story. When I was working up in, in Minnesota, there was a, a grocery up there that was open 24 hours a day. And I would go get my uh, groceries at 5 a.m. And I would go there and I had a lot of patients in the area, a small community. And I'd go at 5 a.m. and the only people in there were me and my patients. Is that and right? we were all, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so all the uh, combat vets were uh, in there shopping at five in the morning and, you know, running through to get in and out, backs against the wall, you know, the whole thing. Uh-huh. And I think Carol went with me one time. She pointed, <laughs> just uh, pointed it out to me. I was, I really hadn't made note of it. I was probably avoiding the uh, <laughs> the issue, but, but that's, so a lot of that goes on is that I was doing things differently. You know, I was pretty restless and very fortunate working for the Veterans Administration. If I became, uh, oh, how can I put this delicately? Lost my faith in some of my uh, operational leaders. Mm-hmm. I could always transfer to another uh, post and start over. You know, you know, they always needed psychiatrists in different places. I worked in four or five different VAs. So I didn't get thrown out of anywhere, but I left some places before that happened, maybe. <laughs> so. Let me let me ask it this way, Chuck. The fact that yeah. you, because of your experiences, many of them painful and many of them long-lasting, because of those experiences, you were able to make a connection with many people in a way that you might not have otherwise. So is there some gratitude mixed in? Yes, I think so. Oh, yeah. The the uh, combat and the Vietnam experience is a very clearly ambivalent one. And you mentioned it. There were positives. It took years to see some of them. But I do remember it as a breathtakingly beautiful country mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. things like that. And I, too, had little or no animus toward the people there. Mm-hmm. It was I was more angry at the supply sergeants that screwed up our resupplies <laughs> and stuff. I was being, thought I'd much rather shoot one of those people than, <laughs> than have Vietnamese. But anyway, yeah, the good and the bad, I think that's true of all of our lives. You know, they're mixtures of good and bad. And sometimes our filters are up and we only see the bad, but there is good going on. We just have to uh, be able to see it or talk to a sympathetic, caring person who helps us see the positives. 
But you're right there, you know, and I am grateful and I, I, that I was given that experience and was able to use it in a positive way. That's another thing I read that helped me, Bob, was uh, a book by um, Victor Frankl. Victor mm-hmm. Frankl was a psychologist who was in a death camp in World War II. And he survived. And one of the things that uh, occupied his mind was he remembered seeing people who just seemed to give up and die. Mm-hmm. They'd turn their head to the wall and they'd die in the night. Mm-hmm. And other people who fought like hell and wouldn't quit. And he examined this paradox and decided what, what helps people survive tribulation and endure pain and suffering is they have to develop a meaning for their suffering. They have to understand it or reinterpret it as having a purpose or a meaning. People, and so, you know, we build myths for ourselves. We develop stories for ourselves. (laughs) And if we can construct a meaning or a purpose for our horrible existence or tribulation and say, well, that was meaningful, it was important, it needed to be done, or it allowed something. I certainly wasn't following his advice, but I read it later and said, oh, that's what it is. Yes, I was always grateful I had had the experience to help these guys. I'll give you a quick short one. um, There was an old fellow who was in the intensive care unit at one VA hospital, and, and he was given the nurse's fits. He was you know, waking up at night and, and yelling, say, there are rats in the ceiling and, mm-hmm. you know, give, just giving them a horrible time. And they thought, they called me. They wanted me to give him something to, you know, slug him down and shut him up. And I just talked to him. And it turns out he was a Burma veteran. The Burma oh. theater was not very publicized, wasn't figure, it doesn't figure big in the history of World War II, but it was a horrible, you know, terrible campaign in in horrible jungles. So I felt a real connection to him on that. He talked about the large rats that used to feed around outside their foxholes and would chew on uh, casualties, would chew on dead bodies and so forth. And he said, I know there are rats up there. I, I know there are rats. And, you know, he, I was pretty convinced he was right. And so we talked to the custodians and they, they went up in the ceiling area and there were a bunch, there was a, a couple of rats up there. Is that right? Yeah, skittering around. And he, <laughs> you know, he was very familiar with their sounds at night. Wow. They were able to clean up that situation. But the, the point is, <laughs> you know, the, even the wildest stories are worth listening to because they can they can teach us things or they they can be important. So I was glad I was able to help that guy. You know, and we were good friends until the very end of his life. And I was glad I could you know help him. But that's an example, you know. Yeah. So yes, Bob, there are <laughs> there are good sides to it. Yeah, that takes care of my questions. But I want to offer you the opportunity. Is there anything that we did not touch on, Chuck, that you'd like to add in? Please feel free to do that. I kind of exhausted myself, but I, you know, I think maybe the important thing for the future is never forget the support that our veterans need to rejoin uh, civilian society, to feel useful again, and to have meaningful 
things in their life, you know, we can give that to them often just by listening and accepting. I think that's that's fine. I, I'm glad I had the opportunity to talk about it. I don't very often, but I appreciate you taking the time and, and the other folks, Mike Urban and others to make this possible. And thank you for the technical people that help us do it. It's really been an honor, and I, I so appreciate your willingness to share your, not just your time, but some difficult stories and emotions that are associated with many of those stories. And It's truly an act of kindness, Chuck. Thank you so much. Our guest has been Chuck Doc Sprague, former Navy corpsman who served in combat in Vietnam with the 3rd Marine Division. Then upon returning home and graduating from medical school, spent his career as a psychiatrist, serving veterans in the VA medical system. Chuck, thanks again for generously sharing your thoughts and recollections and feelings with us today. It's just been a pleasure to have you on board. And on behalf of our recording engineer, Iris, this is Bob Bach. Thank you for joining us on the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.